if there's anything for our consciousness after after death, my sense is it's something that we should look forward to. Results May Vary is a podcast and a community to help you design your life. Through our work in the fields of design, innovation, and executive coaching, Chris, Kati, and I have learned that the creative problem-solving strategies we use to help organizations tackle tough challenges apply to people challenges, too. The design process is universal. Gaining empathy and taking action is useful for every industry and individual alike. Our hope is that by sharing stories from people who've designed their own lives in unique ways, that you can take what's useful and apply it on your own. So tune in, take note, try an experiment, and then try another. We're all born creators, and every day is a whole new chance to create. Today, we're excited to welcome physician, author, speaker, and friend, Dr. B.J. Miller. As a practicing hospice and palliative care doctor, B.J. is best known for his TED Talk, What Really Matters at the End of Life, and he recently co-authored A Beginner's Guide to the End with the editorial director of IDEO, Shoshana Berger. B.J. sees patients and caregivers through his online palliative care service, Metal Health, and He's the subject of Netflix Academy Award-nominated short documentary, Endgame. Let's listen in as BJ shares his story of recovery from a life-altering accident at 19 through his perspective of creativity instead of loss. We'll also dig into what death can teach us about living fully and how design can help us overcome the fear of embarrassment and shame that often holds us back from the very life experiences we desire the most. Welcome, BJ. We're really excited to have you here, and it's great to see you again. Um, I've known you for a few years and, and really appreciate your work. I'm going to turn to Tracy for our first question, but uh, thank you for making the time, and we're really excited to talk with you today. Um, so we wanted to start off, how would you explain your work to someone who's never heard of it before? Hmm. <laughs> we start off with a hard one. um i mean i think i usually go my usual answer is i'm a physician you know that's what i'm trained to do blah 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 so i think that's what most people often but then that doesn't get you very far then i'll say i'm a palliative care doc you know my job essentially is to help people feel as well as possible no matter what's going on in their lives and so that's where my work ends up really focusing on existential issues, spiritual issues, identity. BJ, I, I suppose before we dive deep into those subjects and, and wherever else we go today, can you talk a little bit about what happened in, in your adolescence and youth and, and how it shaped what you do today? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it was a big moment. Um, so, so when I was 19, Sophomore year of college, I was uh, screwing around on a commuter train with a couple of friends of mine. But we weren't doing anything crazy. It was just a parked, non-operative train just sitting there. We climbed it like you'd climb a tree. And uh, But I had a metal watch on, and the electricity, the current jumped to the metal watch. So I ended up getting, I think, <laughs> excuse me, I think it was something like 11,000 volts. And that resulted in the loss of one of my arms and both legs below the knee. So... 
and, and a very near death experience of sort of touch and go in a burn unit for a few months. So that, that was my big, uh, well, I love this. I haven't used this phrase in a while. The, co- the cosmic spanking. This is something that you know, just some huge overwhelming force just came along and just threw me around for a while. Um, so that, that is sort of the big moment, but so many things flowed from dealing with that moment, but also a lot of things preceded it. So I grew up with, um, a mother who had polio as an infant and then had post-polio syndrome still does. And, and much of my childhood was spent as something of a caregiver. So that also, and being around disability and caregiving and receiving throughout my life, I, I um, really is probably the start of all this much more than the accident itself per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, that, we can't wait to dive into this uh, conversation with you. But before before we get, this is not a question we get to ask all of our guests, but hey, before we get into death, <laughs> can, can we cover wine motorcycles in Utah? Would you talk about some of those things that, that bring you joy and how you've needed to navigate the constraint of being a triple amputee and, and how I think these uh, examples inspire a lot of people around how it hasn't held you back? Yeah, no, thanks, bud. These are my, these these are fact favorite things to think about and talk about. Um, so I'd always been in. in I, I was a suburban kid in suburban Chicago and grew up on a bicycle in a lot of ways. Um, and have always that sort of mm, that feeling of two wheels, of sort of the gyroscopic uh, sensations of riding a bike. I've just always loved. And um, so one of the first things I wanted to do when I started walking on prosthetic legs again was to see if I could get on a bike and it and, uh, and it and wasn't it was maybe a couple years in when I was able to do so and that was a huge huge moment for me um because to revisit this basic fundamental love that was already in my bones a b also extended my range because early on I couldn't walk and stand nearly as much as I can now so it was also a huge mobility tool. I could get, we could go way farther on my bike without too much wear and tear on my stumps. Um, so it was a, a, it was a practical as well as an emotional and identity issue and just plain old fun. So, but you know, I think part of what your question gets at too is one of the gifts of the injuries for me um, was that it kind of broke me down it broke me down, took me down to the studs, you know, it, it took me and, and so I could look at my life as a sort of heap of raw materials, at least my bodily life, seeing my life and seeing my body as raw material to work with, to play with, to experience with, proved to be a really important frame shift. Because um, then that allowed me to kind of get into my prosthetic legs rather than see them as these cheap um, you know, alternatives to the, the better thing that I lost. And so it wasn't a consolation prize. I, I love these legs for their own sake, the material, their look, the shape, what they allow me to do. And you can imagine that creative mindset is way more engaging um, than is just the frame of loss and trying to somehow reapproximate what you've lost. In fact, the joy is not being constrained anymore by flesh. I'm constrained by carbon fiber in some ways. And that opens up new avenues for me. And it was that kind of thinking that got me on a bike and eventually got me on a motorcycle. That's really appropriate to the period of time we're in right now uh, with COVID and everything. And I've never heard anybody talk about their recovery process that way. 
it sounds like you were, you know, a, a designer from the beginning. And, mm. and I'm just curious, you know, what inspired you to look at it from the perspective of creativity instead of loss? I think, um, uh, I think maybe just sort of a hunch and some, some sort of basic intuition. And I think building on my mother's legacy with me and all that I learned from growing up around disability and also growing up at a period, you know, the, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act came around in 1990-91 and being around for that change where disability became viewed as a civil rights issue, not just a medical issue or, or, or the subject of charity. But the mind shift of I didn't, thanks to my mother and all this preceded, these, these preceding variables, you know, when I was lying in the burning it, I didn't, like a lot of my friends in the rehab process, they almost, they had like a required year or two or more of basically just hating themselves because their bodies had failed them and they could only see they were leading a life that no one would want, et cetera. You know, it's just all bad, all negative. And for all those reasons I was stating earlier, I, I got to sidestep a lot of that and start really looking towards what could be, what could I do? How could I respond? What was possible? And I'm sure this language lights up for you guys as designers. You talk about, BJ, a lot of what we try to do on this show is demystify design. And it's really pretty simple, which is constraints, creativity, prototyping, experimentation, repeat, you know, and keep learning. Can you talk a little bit about where you met design thinking more formally and, and what that experience was like for you? It feels like you were doing that all along and maybe that put some structure to it, but I'm, I'm really curious where you and design thinking met along the way. Yeah, I think we have, you're, you're right. I feel like in, in retrospect, I came to realize that I was applying a design thinking lens, but I didn't realize that and I didn't have that language. Yeah, I was actually interested. What are some of those things that sparked for you initially? Well, finally, full-throatedly owning this creative notion. I would have been a little uh, shy to use that language, um, not feeling deserving of it, not feeling artistic per se. Um, so part of it was just owning this creative energy. Um, and then also then from there, digging in a little deeper and realizing uh, and it kind of things came together. Like um, a lot of us who become disabled will find a way to say some sort of version like, you know, if I could have my old body back, I know I'm not sure I would take it because I've learned so much from this experience, right? And I know that's a kind of a silly question because you can't get your old body back. And if I could have my four limbs back, I, I don't know, maybe I'd take them. I don't think you need to lose three limbs to learn these basic lessons. Um, but whatever the case is, my point is, on some level, through a therapeutic process, you get to the point where you start appreciating a thing that caused you so much pain. And, um, and that, I started seeing the power of limitations, um, and not just the power of them, but the, how we humans rely upon these limitations. And over the years, I've started kind of, you know, a four-legged human being with a certain look and a certain physique is held out as the ideal and anything not that is less than. But I don't ever hear, it came to me one time talking to school kids, like they were asking me, don't I, don't I miss having, you know, my, this one kid I remember was asking me about two hands. You know, like talking to him, I realized, well, 
yeah, I, sure. I miss having two hands. I just don't, I just don't have two hands anymore. Um, um, and so I've stopped comparing myself to this thing I don't have anymore. And that was a really big deal. And I turned to the kid and I said, you know, don't you, don't you, you know, aren't you sad that you don't have three hands? You know, there's this weird silence. And eventually, and I've said that to a lot of kids since then, and some kids kind of get it like, right. You're sitting there as a standard bear and you're not wishing you had a different body than you have because you have a standard body. And so throughout all this, it allowed me to take on, be a, an N of one and be my own frame of reference and to soften the comparing and contrasting that I do with others. I still do it, but to soften a little bit. And back to the point of seeing my restrictions, my limitations as, as the source of creative energy to adapt, to work through, to work around. You start thinking about it, that's, that's what human beings do so darn well. Part of this realization was to, to learn to appreciate these limitations as design variables. Take some of the charged adjectives out of them of good, bad, whatever, and just see them as the facts of life and, and design with them. Like an architect would use, would work with material restrictions or gravity or whatever else. So I started to feel like I was part of this much larger family of human beings adapting to reality. Yeah. So, so speaking of taking on big challenges, a, a large part of your work is about reimagining and redesigning uh, end of life and end of life experiences. I've heard you say uh, that you're not afraid to die, but you're afraid of not living fully. Yeah. Would you mind, can you just unpack uh, in your own words, the meaning behind why you're saying that? Yeah. Thank you, Chris. That's a, a favorite uh, that was a, not a favorite quote necessary, but a favorite realization for me personally. It was liberating to realize the, the truth of that. And part of it came from working with others who were closer to the end of life than myself and watching um, what drove them, what, what, what the source of so much heartache was not so much that, that they were going to die soon, was that they regretted decisions they'd made in the past and didn't necessarily have time to revisit them. And um, And so... I start, you start thinking, of course, thanks to all these teachers that, you know, gosh, what is a meaningful life? What am I doing with my time? Um, this is the great thing that death does for us. It makes our take our life seriously. And so in that process, I started realizing, you know, and thanks to my injuries, I, I developed a really different relationship to fear. So eventually I landed in this place where I realized I was that fear would be this thing that hold me back, that regret was something of, of the ish of the problem. Um, and that watching people come to their deathbeds, wishing they had led a different life if they had only let into the fact that they were mortal. And so that all let me make help between my injuries and the experience around that and all these vicarious moments with patients and families, I realized that death wasn't really the enemy, that a half-assed life was more a closely, uh, more, more of an enemy per se, but I really don't mind trying things. I don't, I've gotten better at falling. I like to fall. <laughs> I almost, I almost, there's mm. something I've just embraced about the whole thing, which allows me to try. And I know that will serve me well when I am finally at my deathbed because my regret pile will be, will be lower than it would have otherwise been. How do you know if you are, or you aren't living fully BJ? That's a great, great question, uh, Chris, because we're like getting beyond some of these things that can feel a little like taglines, um, and they're not easy, right? Um, so I, that's, a, that's a great question, and I struggle with it because I, what I struggle with is, am I my, really my, can I really be my own judge and jury? 
what is my relationship to the um, experience of others of me and around me? If you're not careful with this kind of language, you can set out on a path of trying to gobble up life and, uh, and accumulate such a life. And that, that's what looks like a full life. Zillions of experiences, um, you know, that kind of thing. I don't really think that that, I don't think of it in those terms. Um, I, it's something more self-referential. At the end of the day, the way I check myself, Chris, is I, did I, is there an emotion? Is there a thought that I'm ignoring? Is there something I'm ashamed of and hiding? Is there something I really want to do that I'm not doing or I'm ignoring? That kind of thing. These are the ways I sort of practically check myself if I'm living a full life. So you mentioned about fear and you just said about shame. How do you face that? That seems to be the limiting factor for a lot of people, just the fear of shame. So what advice would you have for people on how to face that with more courage or permission? Yeah. And I think all of us need to set that tone. I mean, I think this is largely an indictment of society and how we work as a herd, as a group. Um, also, we should acknowledge what that does. I think shaming is a powerful force. I think there's a, there's a time and a place of it. There, I can imagine doing things that I would really be ashamed of. But it's a tool like guilt that we kind of overuse. It's a powerful, blunt instrument, and we overuse it on each other and ourselves. I think the question each of us needs to be asking ourselves is more like, am I doing what I feel and think is right at this time? I may learn something tomorrow that makes me change my mind, but right now is what we have. And a part of this, of course, is bringing yourself back into the moment religiously as much as you can. And right now, knowing what I know, feeling what I feel, here's what I think I should do. I love how you talk about the end you're closer to the cosmos and you have this experience where you look at it and you go, look, there's a bunch of human systems here and you can, you can put it in context. Um, the truth is, is until then, you know, we live in these human systems. We've got bills to pay and school to go to. And, and even the U S view on vacation time is really limited. Yeah. So what, what, not everyone has the, the seminal event yeah. until that happens. Can, people self-create the awareness and what what recommendations do you have for them to stay awake so to speak in the middle of living through these systems yeah great thank you guys i appreciate these questions uh i think one is you mentioned systems i think it's it has been very helpful for me to draw a distinction between what is invented or built created by humans versus what nature plopped down um because if it's an invention, whether it's a way of thinking or a place, um, well, that's made up. It's not like the gods delivered it or Mother Nature delivered it. We made it up. Therefore, it's changeable. And if it's a built thing, then it's activism to change it, make it better, improve it for everybody's sake. Um, so that's where I know how to push. When I know, I, I, know, I know when to push if it's man-made, I know when to accept, this is loosely speaking, when nature made it so. Is, is the suffering that life dishes up enough or, or in your own life or people that you work with, is, is there an element of creating suffering? And what I mean by that is I think through some of our own life experiences and often you look back to it was really hard in the beginning and whether it's someone starting a company or trying something new, it's like you said, you fall a few times. So mm-hmm. do you endorse um adding additional suffering it's a weird question i know but um just curious oh it's so good how you think about suffering 
No, it's such a good question because because if you're not careful, you can fetishize suffering. And I've seen I've seen that impulse in myself and others. I have it is there's a real we can become too attached to our miseries and the narratives that spin out from it. That's a really good and important question. And I to, to give a full-throated response, no, there's normal daily life, nature will throw enough suffering your way happenstance will throw enough suffering your way. You do not need to create any of it, um, period. Let me just put a billboard up about that. Anyone, no matter how fortunate they are, if they have the least bit of empathy in them, they will feel the suffering of others just walking down the street. So there's no shortage of the stuff around. We do not need to invent it. Quite the opposite. So we've talked a lot about you know, sort of how to create and, and the challenges of creating in healthcare. What are some of the things that you're doing now to be more of that activist or be more of that change agent? Well, one of the things that came up, uh, well, God, I, I never answered before question about all that came from my uh, time hanging around IDEO and getting into the design thinking world. I mean, the TED Talk flew from that and that introduced me in large part to Shoshana Berger and Shoshana and I end up working on this book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, that came out last year. Um, and we see that as a piece of activism. I mean, that is a way to kind of put all some basic information in one place so that in, in an effort to lift, we're not going to blow out the ceiling with that book, but we would, we would like it to lift the floor for everybody. Because as we know, a lot of people suffer through the healthcare system just because out of confusion. So writing that book, which was painful and difficult uh, and took four years of our lives, that felt like a piece of activism. And we're glad that that's out in the world. But now my, the, the latest thing is what a little company, my, my partner Sonia and I are starting called Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E health.com. And it's basically an online palliative care counseling business that is our response to the COVID epidemic. It's something that I'd wanted to do otherwise, but I, I saw it as a, a piece of a different project. But when COVID hit, uh, it really turned our attention back to direct service, direct care, and making it as accessible as possible. So, so mental health is this place that anyone can go to. You don't need a doctor's referral. Um, and you just come and schedule an hour at a time with us and, uh, and, and receive out of care through telehealth or over the telephone. Um, and can you give people an idea of what it looks like to receive palliative care? What what primes you to be the type of person who would do that? So for, for one, palliative care is not just end-of-life care. A lot of my patients and clients in mental health, uh, you know, are in remission. I've had clinic patients I saw for 12, 13 years, you know, who are nowhere near death. And this is where the public needs to understand that you're relevant to palliative care if you're dealing with some sort of serious illness and you're struggling in ways you don't think you need to, or you want to see about making your life feel better than it, than it currently does, then, then palliative care is for you. So, but unfortunately, most of us think you have to be deathly ill and have a few weeks to live to qualify for palliative care. So we've got a huge marketing messaging phenomenon to try to overcome with this. I was going to say, I think you need a name change. <laughs> yeah. Palliative care. I don't even know what that means. I just think so many people would be confused. And if they do know, assume yeah. it would be end of life for sure. Totally. It's a huge, it's a, it's a big question in my field. There's just an article in the Washington Post last week about whether the field should really seriously consider changing its name. 
and the, the nominee is supportive care, because that's really what we're here to do, we support you. We're not here to fix you, we're here to support you. That phrase was coined by a Canadian doctor to get away from the baggage that the word hospice connoted. And so he started out of care and that now we're trying, now that absorbed the baggage of hospice. And so now here we are changing the name again, potentially. Um, so I'm, I'm mixed. Do we focus our energy and really um, clarifying for the public what palliative care is and isn't um, and make it more accessible? Um, or do we change the name and, and, and try to uh, another route in with people? Yeah. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I wonder if you guys have an opinion. But I would say that language is a living thing. And yeah. so um, when you first started talking about like the public needs to understand, that's always like a flag for me that the, the design is broken. It's like right. the public doesn't need to understand. You need to understand the public in a way that allows them to, to do what you want. But yeah, BJ, I, switch gears a little bit your your book is titled a, a beginner's guide to the end and and it's a phenomenal piece of work so hats off to you and, and shoshana for for that great piece thank you you've helped directly more than a thousand people in their experience of end of life um mm -hmm. and indirectly i'm sure at this stage it's hundreds of thousands and ultimately i believe you'll touch millions of people's lives mm -hmm. and uh I'm curious, design loves to learn from extremes. Mm. You have seen this happen for so many people. Mm. It's a big question, but what can you teach us? And what, do you, what have you learned that you'd like to bring back to the masses? And what can we learn from you? Uh, one is this is subtle but important frame shift um, of, of death being part of life. Um, I think our language in the U.S. and our sort of habits suggests that death is this foreign invader, this thing that is opposed to life or antithetical to life, um, when in fact life is completely dependent on it. And, 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 and death is an, a, a, a very, <laughs> the most normal thing of a normal life. So one is this, start with this big sort of structural thing. Find, design yourself, pencil out, find the language to describe your frame of reality. And in that frame of reality, make sure you include things like death, disability, illness, vulnerability. Those are not anomalies. Those are not things that tear you away from life. Life goes, the highway of life goes right through those things, period, end of story. Another point uh, that, I've, that I've, mostly from work around disability is that, that independence is a myth someone who's become disabled it's so hard because you feel like you're leaving the world of the independent happy people and you're going to this sort of warehouse place of dependent people as though there's two there's sort of two different populations but of course when you stop to think about it independence is a myth there is no, no no one has ever existed i will stake i will bet the farm on this that no one has ever existed who is fully independent that is who needs no one so um, this goes a long way to sort of de-shaming and destigmatizing. This is just normal stuff. We are all dependent on one another. And as you move through life, you just might move up or down that spectrum a little bit, but you're on the same spectrum. That's another huge, huge piece. And then I suppose another one would be um, this basic, 
well, we talked a little bit about teasing out the man-made sources of suffering from the nature-made ones and putting your hat in the nature-made ones and finding a way to either combat or shrug off or laugh at the man-made stuff. And one way you can sort of couch death is, is a reapproximation or a reacquaintance uh, process of people sort of reacquainting themselves with nature. Um, in so many ways in 20th century, we humans have sort of been in a flight from nature or a battle with it. But death is this thing that kind of comes along and reminds us that that's, that's we're really not at war with nature we are, unless we want to be at war with ourselves. And in this way, death kind of reacquaints ourselves, each of us with the nature in us. And I think that's a, I think that's beautiful. And I've watched a lot of people at the end of life after some kicking and screaming, turn that corner and just find all sorts of therapeutic value in that. They feel part of something much larger as an independent autonomous person. It's all on you as someone who's part of a larger ecosystem. It's not on all, all on you. And then I'd suppose one more piece, if we still got time is back to what we started talking about is really this aesthetic domain and not talking ourselves out of quote unquote, the little things very often at the end of life, it comes down to wanting to watch a ball game or a bite of ice cream or to feel some touch, very simple, basic things. A lot of the more complex drives that, that entice us earlier in life when we have this open runway in front of us or a sense of an open runway in front of us, it can crowd out the quote unquote little things, but there's nothing more important than these little things. And the end of life is a perfect foil to kind of pr prove that. <laughs> One more is that I think a lot of us anticipate that dying must be a miserable process. And a lot of us, our overactive imaginations tend to imagine the world worse than it actually is when you're going through it. And so just to watch ourselves as you imagine death to be this scary, horrible thing, it's not necessarily so, especially if you have hospice or loving people around you. I've got to hop in here. What do you think happens after death? Well, I am a devout agnostic. You know, like I love, and for all the deathbeds I've hung around, I've not seen anything that convinces me one way or another. I've looked in the eyes of many people who are at the very end who are crossing over back and forth, back and forth. And the fear tends to go away. Um, the amazement tends to ramp up. And so all I can say is, if there's anything for our consciousness after, after death, my sense is it's something that we should look forward to. That's just a biased gut sense. That may be me protecting myself. Maybe I'll freak out when it's my time. I don't know. But beyond that, it's a, big, it's a big fat mystery to me. And that has become a source of intrigue for me. I love mystery. I love not knowing. It allows me to kind of feel my way. And uh, I also draw, draw, see a lot of spirituality of spiritual notions in science. You know, what, what do we know? We do know that energy and our bodies just decay and that there's a transfer of energy. You bury a body in the naked ground, it will feed the grass. That's just provable. You can observe that. There are immortality threads. Once you're let go, of, your ego will die. You will die. But your body is home to zillions of critters. You start opening this question up of, of mortality, and it gets pretty interesting and also very mysterious. And I'm okay with all of it. And again, if I had to guess if there's some sort of life after death beyond the ones we can observe, my sense is it's a benevolent one. That's very comforting. You say that one of the most important things that you do with people when they're facing end of life is to ask them what's most important to you now. And yeah. so I'm 
yeah. So I'm curious, what's most important to you now? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Golly. I think what's most important to me is something to do with finding my way for all my talk earlier in this interview or in this conversation. Um, I still find ways to shame myself, to be embarrassed. I still find ways to regret. I still find ways to doubt myself. And I suppose I'd really like to get to a place where I'd like to complete this process where I am comfortable being totally naked, exposed, because I really believe in my heart that there is nothing stronger than vulnerability. That's before I die, I hope I really actually get fully comfortable, completely exposed. My goal isn't to get rid of fear in me. It's just to not be ruled by that fear. Like, you know, so I'm not trying to get rid of the hard stuff. It's I'm trying yeah. to be okay with the hard stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. an important distinction. I think that's so important for listeners to hear because I, you know, it, it, I've found too that like the things that I say and I know aren't necessarily the things that I do. So it's good to hear that you who seems to have it all together but you still are dealing with the same human challenges. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Thanks for being human, BJ. Hey, no problem. BJ, it's been such an honor. I, in, in the deepest part of my authentic self, this is such an awesome, awesome conversation. And we're so blessed to have you on this uh, journey with us. <laughs> awesome. Bye, Thank guys. You guys. Have All a right. great day. Bye-bye. Bye, Tracy. Bye, Chris. Tracy, I just can't put words to how significant that interview was. To me, it felt like it's an episode I feel like me and others in this community can turn to often, like a favorite book that teaches you something new every time you read it and listening to it at different modes in your life. Uh, each time would present something quite different. And uh, that's, I don't mean to over-index on, on that, and, uh, but it just, we went into so many incredible territories around BJ's personal experience, his experience with treating others, his insights on living, his insights on end of life. Just, it's just uh, powerful, powerful. The thing that he left me with that really helped at the end was just knowing that he's still working on his vulnerability and his fears and that it's more of a lifelong pursuit than it is getting to a destination. We know it, but it helps when, when a professional, you know, really plays it back that this suffering is just a part of the human condition mm -hmm. and to hear it from someone who has suffered greatly, you know, through uh, and has helped many other people through their suffering it's uh there's something profoundly reassuring about the suffering that oftentimes we're fighting it and bj kind of reminds us that it's there it's you're you go through it not around it and uh that was that was really meaningful and a great reminder to hear that yeah i think his i mean it's interesting that he kind of looks back and considers it something that was more ingrained in him because of his experience with his mom. But to think that his perspective was seeing other people and seeing them go through about two years of hating themselves 
to make the choice and to remember that it is a choice, even though it's not an easy one, to take a different path and to decide that, no, instead of wallowing in self-pity, I can, he said, like, break his life down to the studs and use that raw material to make a leap forward. Yes. And just to remember that that's possible for all of us. He had something that was monumental to even consider getting over. So how can we apply it in our lives when we have, you know, smaller, smaller things that we're dealing with? That's right. That's right. And we talk a lot on the show about constraints and being really creative with the constraints. And as you just pointed out, I think BJ is the poster child, if there was one, of of celebrating constraints. And uh, if we listen to his motorcycle and his bicycle and the way and his recovery and just it to me, it just made me feel like, you know, whatever constraint you may feel uh you you know that someone like that who's worked through more uh more profound constraints is is just an inspiration for all of us the other one that stood out for me too tracy is that this independence is a myth and i really love how he pulled that out and that i think we have a culture that loves to believe and hold up and put on a pedestal this false perception that a lone genius or a solo hero can do it all themselves and there's no vulnerability and no weakness and it just is never ever true uh, and that we all have a dependence and that was a great reminder um of that and and it's not just for the super achievers but that the, the this universal truth of depending on each other is just everywhere yeah, it made me think about, you know, it, we we disable ourselves in some way. I mean, to borrow the language from what's happened to him, like he used his disability to overcome challenges that able-bodied people sort of put their constraints or societally we have these constraints put around us that we really, when you take the time to think about what's serving me, what's not, what do I want my life to be like, uh, what what would be most meaningful, it really requires you to show up and to be vulnerable and to take on um, just the cultural, you know, the, the, the ways that culture tells you you should be living your life. And I just, I, I sat with that for a minute and, and just thought like, what a strange, what a strange way to live life as a human <laughs> exactly. is to make, make it more challenging for yourself, but only in your mind. <laughs> right, right, right. And that uh, we had a good laugh about that, but it's it's so helpful to just step back. And he talked about overusing guilt. Oh, society <laughs> overuses guilt, and so do so do individuals with themselves. Um, yeah, probably you and I included. Yeah, and uh, and that is such a stark reminder. But when we got to this level of human systems, and and it's so funny to sort of just extrapolate out and look at it and just think, well. Well, that's dumb. <laughs> and why why don't we just naturally challenge that more and get after it? And uh, again, BJ is a great example of that. But as he said, he he can struggle too. And it's just a great reminder. It's like, yeah, these are all just a bunch of human systems. They were they mm-hmm. were made up, mm-hmm. um, whether big or small. You know, we're talking about society, but even these little ones, and we just made them up. So yeah. So stop overusing the guilt. Yeah. 
And instead, how do you switch your perspective to creativity and generative, a generative nature? I think that's really where the personal power comes from, the strength as an individual to make the choice that you're going to create something different for yourself or for the systems that you're a part of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fun interview too for such a, a, a plethora of heavy topics. I yeah. really enjoyed the conversation and, and really enjoyed doing it with you, Tracy. That was, that was really fun. We're back. We're back. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. Want more? We'd love to have you participate in the conversation we're having about life design by joining our Results May Vary podcast Facebook group. That's where we'll share more tips, tricks, and inspiration, and where you can share your own experiments with fellow community members who also know and believe that we're all born creators, and every day is a whole new chance to create. And as always, thanks so much for listening to... Results May Vary!